Hey, this is Matt. Today we have with us two journalists from Kazakhstan. We have lots of rules in this dormitory. You can't enter after 11 o'clock. Really? really? I came at 2 a.m. <laughs> I'm also here with Tracy. Hey, Tracy. I've never actually stayed in the dorms. You guys know UT better than I do. <laughs> You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. From the former Soviet Union, in this case Kazakhstan, we have with us Yelnur and Igerim. Is that okay? Yeah. Wow, right. I'm, I'm really proud of myself for even doing okay with that. I know a little bit about Kazakhstan, but I don't think most Americans know much about Kazakhstan. I also don't think a lot of Americans know a lot about journalism and about like what it means kind of as a uh, profession. I guess the first question I'd like to ask you guys is how you guys got involved with journalism, how it interested you and how it's kind of become this path that you're going down in terms of career development and so on. Start. No, you can start. <laughs> okay. I'm pretty recent to journalism. Like, I, it's it's not that I was doing it for decades. Um, I, I went to undergraduate studies and I studied journalism and then during my bachelor's I actually was an exchange student in the US in mm. Alabama mm -hmm. and I studied journalism there for one semester and then I came back I did my master's in international journalism while still working as a freelance journalist and then after my master's I um I got a scholarship from the UK government and I studied in London, um, media and communication governance. And yeah, I came back like in February and after that I started doing journalism again. As for me, uh, actually I made my bachelor's degree and the master's degree in journalism in Kazakhstan. And then while I was studying at second year at university, I decided to start my internship and the working actually. And then since then, actually that was in 2008, since then I've been working as a journalist for independent newspaper in Kazakhstan called Jasalash. Mm -hmm. So this is how I came to journalism actually. Awesome. Because I, I, I know that, like in the United States, the profession of being a journalist is associated with, you know, there's favorite famous movies about this. Like there's the Watergate era, and then there's like the secret tapes, and so the, there's this whole stereotype about how, or not stereotype, that's not the right word. This uh, this cliche about how it, like, in the the incident that inspired a generation of journalists. Was there a, a very distinct kind of emotional moment or event like that in your life that really said that made you even consider going in this? Uh, career path or, or not necessarily? Uh, I think yes. Why I came to journalism? Because my father worked as a journalist. Ah, okay. And then I decided to become a journalist as my father. And uh, that was during my school years when I was about my in my age uh, class. I decided to become a journalist because at the time we had a kind of quite range of independent newspapers and magazines in Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I can't even imagine that we had such kind of uh, good range of newspapers and magazines because all of them were shut down. Um, but at that time, we had a kind of pluralism, uh, a lot of political parties, oppositional parties. And uh, 
I wanted to be involved in our political agenda, so that's why I decided to go to journalism. As for me, I, I actually, it wasn't like inspiration by someone. Um, <laughs> I just was lazy and I didn't <laughs> want to do like, there is a national test that you have to do when you graduate from uh -huh. high school. And I was lazy to study other subjects, so I chose English. Uh -huh. And with English, you can become either journalist or uh, interpreter or study IR, international relations. Right. And I thought journalism sounds the most funny thing uh, among these things. And when I started studying journalism, I actually realized that this is a um, really interesting and important profession and very much needed in Kazakhstan. But at that time, I did write for foreign media outlets and I've learned um, a lot by practicing my writing skills and just pitching stories to outlets that are interested in covering Central Asia and Kazakhstan. And so you guys are currently here on the Central Asian Journalists in Residence program. What attracted you guys to this program and how is it so far? Well, I applied, I don't remember when I applied to this program actually, but then I got this email that I'm going to be in the States for one month and I thought it's funny <laughs> because um, the the goal of this program is actually good that uh, it connects journalists from Central Asian countries so that in future they can create uh, joint projects or cross-border right. reporting that's, that's projects. Interesting. Not necessarily to the United States, but just amongst themselves. Right? Yeah, because even though we are uh, commonly referred as Central Asian countries yeah, or yeah. the stands, we are very different and sometimes we don't even know much about other countries in Central Asia. Like, for example, from Central Asia, I've been only to Kyrgyzstan, but I've never been in Tajikistan or Uzbekistan or Turkmenistan. And um, there are very different political systems, like Kyrgyzstan is, had two coups and five presidents. Our, our country had only one president <laughs> so far. My purpose was to learn, st uh, to learn stuff in journalism, like data journalism or investigative reporting. And that's why I, I applied to this program and I list my preferences, like I want to do something, something, and uh, including podcasts. So... Probably that's why they decided uh, to place me at QT radio station. Now, currently, with Aigirum, we are learning how to create our own content and uh, podcast, how to do podcast and how to, leave, to deliver uh, to the audience the message and such kind of stuff. Awesome. Yeah. So it's radio. Never done radio. Never done it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just l listening to KUT on the way over here. So yeah. It's a so really a nice of, radio station. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So what do you guys have planned after this program? Are you going straight back to Kazakhstan? Oh, they they gave me visa only for four weeks. Oh, really? It's like the last day when I have to leave the country is 9th of November. And the oh. visa expires on 9th of November. Oh, wow. So I don't know, like, if there is a flight delay or something, I guess I'm going to have some trouble. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> So I, I've lived in Russia for several years, and there's kind of this caricature as, of Kazakhstan as a place that's like even more repressive and where there's like less freedoms. And 
where you know politics is kind of a, a taboo. So I was just wondering. I, I was wondering if you guys could talk a bit about kind of what's the state media like, and then what is what is the kind of uh, alternative uh, journalism? What's out there? Are there a lot of resources out there for people? Actually, as I mentioned, when I decided to become a journalist. Uh, we had a quite good range of independent newspapers and magazines, and mm-hmm. that was quite a long time ago. Unfortunately, nowadays, we don't have such kind of opportunity mm-hmm. to deliver our messages. Uh, we have mostly state media, and those that are not state are private, and they're somehow still funded by oligarchs that are close to state. The, all the independent media are shut down in Kazakhstan, but we still have some independent um, news outlets like uh, where I'm currently working, just a large newspaper mm-hmm. and some international uh, media outlets also could, could cover some kind of politics in Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, we have a, we don't have quite a good range of newspapers and the magazines, I mean independent in this term. And so the newspaper where you work, is it just Kazakh language? Or yeah, do it's do... in Kazakh language. Okay, awesome. And that was established in 1921, actually. Oh, We're wow. going to celebrate one cent- century. And I'm, I mean, I usually just write for international media outlets in English. And um, therefore, I think I might write more about politics than if I would write in local languages like Russian or Kazakh. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but in general... Um, we can cover some of the topics, but you always feel that there is a red line and uh, you better not uh, step out of this red line, otherwise you might have some troubles with your um, media outlet. It's going to be shut down, your journalists will be attacked. Um, Persecuted yeah. or even jailed. Yeah, we have cases like that. Is there kind of an understanding in Kazakhstan that this can, this will, this, this, this will go on for a long time, and that this is something that's not probably going to change? Mm, I think that it became worse very um, sharply in the last few months, when our pres- first president resigned in March 2019, and um, everyone was like, "Wow, that's a change. Let's celebrate." <laughs> And the next day, they just renamed the whole capital after yeah, his name. And then um, after that, things got more restrictive because authorities felt that there is a level of public unhappiness about what's going on in the country. And more people started to go to the streets to protest, despite knowing that they will be detained. And some of them even were jailed for 15 days mm-hmm. to go for protesting peacefully. And um, I've been covering some of these protests during elections, after elections. At one day, they actually jailed 4,000 people. Jailed, um, not detained. D- during three or four year- days, I think. Yeah, during three or four days, they jailed 4,000 people. And they admitted that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we jailed. Yeah. But then, like, it was 12th of June, inauguration day, just three days after elections. And... Um, there were another protest, and at that time they were like, "No, we detained nobody." <laughs> and I was covering this protest, and I've seen like uh-huh. dozens of people were detained. Uh-huh. And then they were like, "No, it wasn't detention. They were just taken for questioning and then brought back." <laughs> and so I don't know how they 
think they count, what is the tension when you're forcefully taken from mm. the place you don't want to go to the place, I mean, you don't want to go. But I've seen that authorities became much bolder in their disinformation even, mm. how they can lie to public and get away with it somehow. Not get away, public knows that it's kind of like way too much, but... I guess they have support from outside so that they can handle us, I guess. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the crazy thing is they still feel a need to write about it when the people on the ground don't, don't know, like, or they do know that it's a lie that people were detained. But how do you write about it then for foreign audiences where maybe the data isn't there to back you up in your own articles? How do you tell people abroad what's going on? Well, usually it's... Like, we rely on government um, statistics, and it's usually much lower than the real number is. I usually report that, for example, Ministry of Foreign Affairs said that they detained, for example, 100 people. But reporters on the ground saw at least 200 or 300 people detained. So, yeah, you always have to to kind of check what, um, what is the real number and... Most of the time, we don't know, unfortunately, because lack of information is um, the business card of authoritarian countries. <laughs> so um, lots of the time we have to guess, we have to imply, assume certain things um, to get as closer as we can to the truthful numbers. I have a question about how you guys separate your role as journalists from also, you know, caring about your country and wanting to be like an active citizen. In the United States, the, the way they usually explain this is that there's, you know, there's uh, activists and then there's scholars, right? And so as journalists, you're supposed to be, you know, objective and all these things. So I was wondering, do you guys, how do you guys kind of make that up in, in your mind? How do you separate those two things, your role as a journalist versus your role as a citizen? And then does that mean that you guys vote? Do you guys participate in um, civic and political life in Kazakhstan, despite being journalists? Actually, no, I, I, I'm not participating in political life of Kazakhstan, but... Because it's useless. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. But I mean, doing journalism is also kind of, could be regarded as political activism in Kazakhstan because... Uh, for example, in 2011, we had Januzian events when police shoot uh, people. Protesters. Yeah, protesters. Shot dead, killed. Yeah, oil workers who was oh, on yes, the strike yes, for yes. about seven months. Right. And that was on our Independent Day. Uh, we, Independence we were celebrating. Day. Yeah, we were celebrating the anniversary of our independence. Wow. Actually, 20 years and. I was one among the journalists who visited that place right after that event. And uh, we found that not just 16 people dead in that place, although authorities claim that overall 16, 16 or 14, 16, 16, 16 mm -hmm. or 17, something like that. Yeah, official yeah. numbers are always low. Yeah, we did. But then uh, we found one woman uh, whose husband was also dead. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how, but she found a dead body of her husband in the baseline of the home, 
one f- apartment actually and then we went there and we also tried to do investigative journalism but of course we encountered with the obstacles mm-hmm. at that time prosecutor's office announced that yeah we know that one more uh person dead but it is not related to the events mm-hmm. uh, he was drunk probably he <laughs> fought with someone and right. that's why he came right he keep- but we don't know quite well what happened at the time so i mean this is also could be regarded as a political activism because it's quite dangerous to cover such kind of things in kazakhstan sure yeah and that that reminds me i know that like so in russia for example uh i don't know if you guys speak russian but there's the word obisk, right and so they go in and they send and they do these searches and seizures at you know at organizations and news outlets right where they take all their computers uh, right? And they take all the stuff and they take it all away. Has Have you guys heard about these kinds of events? In Every month. Yeah. Every month. <laughs> yeah, almost. I mean, it's, as you said, there is like a stereotype that in Kazakhstan, it's much less freedom than in Russia. Yeah. And I think it's true because in Russia, at least you have some opposition movements like mm-hmm. Navalny or right. whatever, whoever else who can actually criticize the government. Mm-hmm. And in Kazakhstan, we have no one. We just have one crazy oligarch who lives in France mm. and he live streams his whatever calls mm. to protest. And authorities actually blocked Facebook when he was live streaming every single day <laughs> within one year. They blocked Facebook from 8 p.m. until 11 p.m. every fucking day. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like crazy. Like they're so scared to. Yeah. To hear any different opinion, they're very, very, um, uh, how to say, like, they don't like any dissent. Right. And so I just want to kind of restate my question from earlier. Like, do the authorities really think that 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 system where there's no dissent allowed can go on forever? Is that, do they think that the system is like working and it can work like that for? Yeah, because most of the ruling elite is still from Soviet school. They they're all being in, I don't know, this KGB diplomatic schools, whatever right, it's called. Right, right, right. And they use the same methods at, as they were in Soviet times. And I think that, um, like, answering the previous question as journalism, form, journalism as a form of activism, I also agree, because if you don't have journalists who would give voices to people who otherwise have so many obstacles to present their views... I think um, it's, yeah, I don't see myself as an activist, but mostly as a journalist um, who can make some impact in um, changes in the country. Because I've seen many cases where sometimes I covered the news that were not covered by local media, and then they might get some international attention and then some international organization might criticize government and then government maybe back down a little bit. So it makes some impact. Mm-hmm. But we're like now in transition period. So yeah, speaking so-called. So-called. Speaking of the transition, I remember when they named I don't I can't remember the new president's Tukayev. Tukayev, right. And when he got named uh, there was it was really one of the funny funny things that happened is they kept photoshopping his photos so he had like a double chin and they also made his cheeks like rosier and redder and they like ch- they changed all the all, all the photos 
Um, and then speaking of the, the, the opposition, I know that for, I think even now and for a long time, wasn't the head of the opposition, uh, uh, Nazarbayev's daughter was like the head of the opposite of, of another party. In, yeah, in yeah called Asar. <laughs> But then yeah. her, you, her you, dad forced her to to create one for yeah. So yeah, what what is that all about? Was she was she trying to be like a real opposition or what was what was that? That whole story? wasn't quite a positional party. Yeah. That was well, also. What was the point of it then? What was it? Well, her husband Rahat Aliyev was a position guy, like uh-huh. really uh-huh. crazy opposition guy. He he died in Austria in 2015 of suicide. Apparently in Austrian jail. Because Whoa. he had to flee Kazakhstan and she had to divorce him. But yeah, it's like lots of drama. But she has like two sons from him, right? Nurali yeah, and two sons Aysultan. and one daughter. Ah, and one daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now like the, the younger son, Aysultan, is in jail in London. No. <laughs> He's Wait, not in jail. Why would he be? Who's? What's he in jail? What are these people in jail for? In the in <laughs> He's European not in company jail. So he went to London to apartment of whatever woman, although he was married, and he bite a policeman because he was on drugs. He he he, he takes heavy drugs. Uh-huh. So um, and now he he faced uh, one and a half years of probation in London for biting a policeman. You don't say. What? <laughs> I'll be a monkey's uncle. You know, I think for me and for maybe a lot of other Americans, it's just like, it's almost funny to hear these stories because it seems like it's just such a comedy of errors and nobody seems like they're doing any long-term planning for what's what's going to happen. And so kind of getting back to the original question, do you guys have any, can you imagine how this is going to play out? Is Are people can, from Nazarbayev's family going to kind of continue to play a, a large role and maybe come back into in, to the head of the country? I think uh, now they are trying to do so. Uh-huh. And uh, the point of political transit in Kazakhstan is, I mean, everyone knows that it is not a real political transit in Kazakhstan and uh, the main purpose of all these things are probably to pick up another successor who might rule mm-hmm. our country for a long term, probably she could be Dariga Nazarbayeva, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. At least uh, political analysts in mm-hmm. Kazakhstan predict such, such kind of scenarios that mm-hmm. could happen in Kazakhstan yeah, in the future. It, it, it seems likely that it would be somebody related to him. But on the other hand, don't people want, like, I mean, the word is nepotism, right? So it's like, don't people want the... The leaders to not always be the relatives of the nobody <laughs> of it's asks like a family. For... <laughs> it's like a kingdom or something. Yeah, but nobody asks for our opinion, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, Dariga is taking now the second most powerful position. She is uh-huh. a speaker of senate, and Kasim Zumar Tokayev used to be speaker of senate. So, okay. in case uh, uh, the president resigns yeah, or dies, the speaker yeah. of senate takes the right. role of the president. I think it was like some kind of. Uh, control of mm-hmm. Kasim Jumar Tokayev in case he does something that Nazarbayev doesn't like, his daughter can mm-hmm. take the wow. power. Power, yeah. Right. So he's controlled uh, very much. It's not like a real succession. <laughs> Just a, f- a week ago, right? Or maybe yeah, a little bit ago. more than a week ago, um, our current president signed a presidential decree that will limit his own presidential powers. He cannot appoint uh, key uh, ministers without the consultation mm. of the first president. He cannot um, 
he can wow. do anything without consultation of the wow. first president. Wow, wow, that's that's pretty stunning. I was wondering. Um, so you guys say that oh, you know, people's opinion doesn't matter. Is that because the the votes don't matter? Because I know that in Russia, for example, there's big scandals about um, about falsifying the elections, right, and stuffing the ballot box and brosy, right, where they throw all the ballots in. Is it the same issues in Kazakhstan where people, you know? People do go vote for one thing, but their votes aren't counted because the it's a fake uh, election system. Yeah, I mean, I did vote in this June presidential elections for the first time ever, actually, mm-hmm. because before it was just for the record, mm-hmm. everyone knew who would be the president, anyways. Mm-hmm. But this time we also do knew they who make them go to like for for work? Do they say like, oh, did you go to vote and put the sticker on to see? The Some right? people. Who, uh, told me that they were forced to take selfies that they voted for a certain person. And uh, when I voted, for example, and then I uh, stayed uh, to, uh, because I was working as a video journalist, I needed to film the polling stations closing and how they count votes. And after 8 p.m., I stayed in my polling station to film it, but Mm -hmm. they didn't count votes until... Oh, actually, they never counted votes. <laughs> I was waiting until midnight. And uh-huh. they were playing on their smartphones. Uh-huh. They were sleeping. They were eating anything but counting votes. And I was like, when are you going to count votes? I need to film that. And they were like, we're tired. We've been here from 5 a.m. Why are you so rude to us? And and then I I had to leave because I need to submit the material. And... When I left at 11.30 or 40 p.m., I, I got the news that exit poll says that he wins with 77%. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, so it was like weird. And there were some independent observers who actually found um, evidence that um, the vote was not fair, mm-hmm. the voting. So even when you find that evidence, what would the steps be? I feel like nothing would happen even if things were proven wrong. I mean, these activists, they did, they wanted to go to court. Uh, to they claimed, sued. actually, they brand the action to the court, but they lost. Of course, because courts are always biased. So I'm wondering kind of what's going to be the future of, well, I get, I get what's going on in politics, but what about what's the future of journalism in Kazakhstan? Do you guys feel like that there's a new, younger generation who want to start new media outlets and do podcasts and do new websites and use social media to cover events. I think young generation is quite active and uh, at least they are trying to set up some media outlets, websites, and uh, we also have some uh, podcasts um, which was made by young generation actually. And uh, I would believe that uh, in the future we will have a lot of independent journalists but again, everything depends on our political system. And uh, if a political system will be more democratic and open, of course, journalism also can be developed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you notice that like previously it used to be a lot of freedom and many independent media outlets. And it was true, but each time the, the laws got more tightening and then uh, less independent media and less journalists who would cover critical things, more government orders, government purchase. It's like when the government paid to the media outlets so that they will cover positively the government's policy or actions. And um, now we came to the stage where 
government became the main advertiser in the media markets. So that's why we don't see development of like real journalism. But I also see some hope in young generation because actually after protests, uh, after elections, we had some a number of youth movements, civic movements um, that would call for political reforms and a new generation of people who would be responsible for the future of the country. And um, it shows that they care about the country they live in and they really want to bring some positive changes. And some of the people we know, they want to create their own media outlets and somehow um, impact the agenda, the information agenda that is dominated by the state media. And people in general, like readers, they they're they're not stupid. They're tired of this uh, artificial, everything positive coverage. Um, and I feel that there is a need for some real deep analytical investigative journalism. And hopefully it will develop. We don't hopefully. know. Like it doesn't depend on us. It depends much on political system. But yeah. we'll try our best. I couldn't even imagine in 2000 that in 2011 a lot of media outlets would be destroyed and a lot of oppositional parties also could be destroyed but now we see that our uh, oppositional leaders was assassinated killed um, I mean in 2006 uh, Altenbeck Sersimbayalo who was one of the oppositional leaders uh, was killed in Almaty and he was actually the minister of information, information yeah, previously she yeah, in 1990s he worked as a minister and then he set up the party, political party called Aljol and also I had a lot of my favorite media outlets and right after Genozine events uh, all of them were found as a extremist media and they were shut down unfortunately and I don't know where this political agenda would bring us but I hope that Still, there will be space for independent journalism in Kazakhstan. We talk a lot about the brain drain um, from kind of the former Soviet Union. I'm wondering, like, what's the state of that for Kazakhstan right now? Recent statistics shows that there are more people leaving each year Kazakhstan than coming. Mm-hmm. And where do they usually go? To, to Russia, to Europe, and the US? or Mostly... It's Europe and Russia. While we see the um, the flood of migrants from Central Asia to Kazakhstan, and from Kazakhstan, Kazakhs are living somewhere else. So uh, yeah, and I've I know some of my friends have left. Uh, they found jobs in Europe or US, and um, some of them do want to come back if something changes. Some of them don't. They just say it's hopeless mm-hmm. um, but we'll see but there is a thing as a brain drain it's get, got worse in the last few years yeah definitely and some of our colleagues actually they also left country uh, among them were journalists who prosecuted in Kazakhstan mm-hmm. and some of them actually got political, political asylum here. in the United States wow um, th- that, that reminds me so you, you brought up earlier uh, Radio Liberty um, 
so is Radio Liberty fairly popular in Kazakhstan? Do people listen to it or do people read it or anything like that? I think uh, people, uh, I, I think uh, Radio Free Europe in Kazakhstan is quite popular yeah, since they cover a lot about politics, about the protests in Kazakhstan, about political transit and uh, such kind of stuff. And the people usually read and watch watch their channel on YouTube. Yeah. And they do live streaming of protests in Kazakhstan. So mm -hmm. I think they're quite popular. So what and the, the, what about YouTube? YouTube is still f fairly accessible in Kazakhstan. Yeah, they yeah most of the time. It. They also blocking. blocked it together with Facebook, Facebook. at some point. <laughs> but uh, now they, I actually saw some new channels created by some bloggers who actually discuss some political things mm -hmm. very openly on YouTube and it's becoming very popular like there are many hundreds of thousands actually subscribers so um, maybe YouTube is a new space for uh, I don't know expressing your opinions yeah no I really hope it is and do you see podcasts as well being very popular or do you think podcasts are going to get more popular? You were talking earlier about how you're learning how to do podcasting at KUT. Are you going to bring some of those skills back to Kazakhstan and start some new podcasts? Yeah, sure. My <laughs> chief editor already ordered me. <laughs> oh, really? Ah. <laughs> so you're already doing that? <laughs> yeah, I mentioned that I'm learning how to do podcasts here. And he told, okay, once you'll be back, shall we create our own podcasts? Oh, awesome. I, I, actually, we already have podcasts, but he wants to develop that. Very cool. And is it going to basically like reflect the stories that are already in the newspaper? Or what do you want the podcast no, to it's, be? No, it's different content. I mean, uh, our podcast print media which is newspaper is different content and our website creates different content actually and uh, our podcast which is in our website is quite popular and uh, it's it covers mainly topics which might be interested for young generation oh interesting no tell me more about that what are those topics uh, like uh, what young generation thinks about some current political changes and uh, we usually collect the interviews with the young generation on the streets so, which, which is quite popular. You should go like on Apple or uh, uh, actually, Cloud. yeah. I noticed that we have we have uh, we have a channels on iTunes. Oh, um, you do. Google you noticed? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I noticed that. in the place you work for. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. We'll have to link you in to our podcast to make sure our listeners get to check out your podcast as well. But I guess it's in Kazakh. It's in right? Kazakh. Okay, yeah. shoot. <laughs> We do have a number of Russian podcasts in Kazakhstan. Uh, one of them is called Find Your Bee. It means like find a hero in yourself. It's mm. like inspirational, motivational podcast mm. where the host interviews different interesting people in Kazakhstan. And some of them um, can be like uh, charity workers. Some of them can be academics and et cetera, et cetera. But even when I was listening to this podcast, the host once said that the prosecutor's office um, kind of tell, told them that they shouldn't like cover political stuff. Mm -hmm. And yeah, even this space is be trying to be limited by the government. Although but this host is living in Denmark. Oh, really? Because yeah. well, I was going to ask, I don't know, but there's a very popular Russian figure named Dudy. Yuri Dude, yeah. if you've heard of him, who's become very popular. And he's become popular entirely just on YouTube 
by entering, uh, interviewing public people. And so I was wondering, you know, is there a, is there anything like a Kazakh uh, Yuri dude? And if so, why not? Because it seems to me like YouTube could be a really interesting place to kind of normalize uh, discussion and kind of free exchange of ideas. I don't think that we have quite similar uh, what Yuri dude uh, does for Russian uh, journalism because Actually, what Yuri Dude is doing is, is it's a real journalism on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And uh, as it was mentioned by Jana Nimtsova, who is a daughter of Boris Nimtsov. Yes, I know her very well, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said that uh, it's a new quality of journalism in Russia. But unfortunately, I don't think that we have the same dude in Kazakhstan or who might be alternative for Yuri Dude's channel. But still, we have a lot of channels which covers politics, uh, but not at the same level as Yuri Dut, I think. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't... Who knows, watch... maybe we're looking at the next Yuri Dude right now. <laughs> yeah, <before> us. <laughs> I, I'm like terrible at watching YouTube and stuff. <laughs> I don't watch YouTube at all, but um, there are some channels that are very popular in Kazakhstan among young people. But there is also a case that when bloggers become very popular government also pays attention to them so that they will try to manipulate public opinion like the, we had whatever fancy blogger festival where all the bloggers uh, trips were paid and they stayed in luxury hotels they would never do that for journalists and when there are certain protests happening some bloggers would say like why you're going to protest it's better to keep our country safe and stable like you shouldn't do that so they also try to influence this area in russia it was a huge piece of news kazakhstan changing uh, the alphabet from the Kirillitsa to Latinitsa, right, to the, from the Cyrillic alphabet to the Latin alphabet. And it's, you know, there's several reasons you guys know better than I do about why they changed it. I know that Turkish is a Turkish language that, all, that had this, took the Latin alphabet much longer time ago. But in Russia, it was very much told this story of, oh, if they don't have our alp alphabet, that means that Kazakhstan is going to leave our sphere of influence and it's very scary and bad. And um, Nazarbayev is trying to take Kazakhstan away from us something like this and so i would but i was really wondering what it, what's what's it been like uh for you guys this transition of of the alphabet and kind of what's the state of it and by what year will it be will everything be switched over to the new alphabet i think it's by 2025 we need to switch to latin alphabet mm -hmm. and i would say that um, i guess majority would support this because um for many people, uh, Cyrillic alphabet is seen as a colonial legacy. And we used to have Latin alphabet, um, but during Soviet times, they changed our alphabet four times or so. It's really, we lost a lot of literature because of that. And even now, when we, for example, when I talk to Kazakhs from Xinjiang in China, mm -hmm. they don't understand Cyrillic Kazakh because they write in Arabic script. Wow, it's yeah. even like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't understand any Arabic, but they don't understand any Cyrillic. We mm -hmm. just communicate orally. So uh -huh. it's like a loss in generations. Wow. And um, 
yeah, Russia did cover it pretty c- critically. Like Kazakhstan is getting away from Russian influence. They're, they're even discriminating Russian-speaking population. And when I met some Russian, um, even journalists, they would be like, why do you do that? Like, don't you like Russia? <laughs> and I'm like, well, maybe because we're an independent country and we can do whatever the heck we want. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they they really don't understand this thing. Um, but for many people, I think it's, it was a, a good change. And actually, it's good timing that Nazarbayev announced it a few months before his resignation. And it could be only announced by Nazarbayev mm-hmm. because he has a lot of political capital. And uh, I guess Putin wouldn't say, wouldn't criticize much if... If, for example, if Tokayev would announce it, it would be seen as a very bad thing. Uh, but Nazarbayev still has this influence and uh, authority. And so you said that they're supposed to transition by 2025. Does it look like that deadline is going to be met? Like, are, is, are things already changing into Latin on, like, streets or in books? So is it, is it already visible that it, things are changing? Uh, we still have discussions about what version of Latin alphabet should be accepted. And a lot of scientists, scholars are kind of discussing that stuff here, still debating. But I think we could do that. Probably the deadline is quite close, but since we will accept one version, we we can, uh, I I mean, by 2025, uh, we should just accept and uh, literally uh, to start writing in Latin alphabet. Mm -hmm. But once we will accept one version, that will be probably smoothly, smoothly, uh, we, we could move to Latin alphabet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are already many signs in Latin alphabet, but it's very uh, like confusing because nobody knows what's the standard of Latin alphabet mm-hmm. and they write completely crazy things <laughs> in Latin. <laughs> Just because it's in Latin, they can uh-huh. even write Russian um, words in latin (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. um so yeah there is no like agreed standard yet but i've seen that some of the news websites are even translated to latin kazakh now yeah state media outlets also that's really cool yeah Yeah. and have like young children have they started like teaching them with the latin from like all the way up not Are there yet. like children's books in the Latin alphabet? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but there will be. <laughs> yeah. And our country will actually change the name. It won't be Kazakhstan with K. It's going to be uh, Kazakhstan with Q. Wow. So yeah. it's going to be like near the Qatar. <laughs> yeah. 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 And the alphabet. Yeah. But it actually word. reflects the true uh, name because Kazakhstan with KH is a mm-hmm. uh, Russian name for Kazakhstan. Yeah. Um, and in Kazakh, we have our own distinct um, right. sound, k, so Which is not h, right? It's not mm-hmm. h, yeah. And it will reflect the true name of our country. Mm-hmm. That's, oh, I had no idea. That's, that. fan- <laughs> that's fantastic. That's really, really, that's actually really, really encouraging to hear. So. Yeah, especially state media promotes this thing. Mm-hmm. And so, th- so why do you think that they promote it so much? Because I heard one theory that, I heard there's several theories. One theory is, again, Get, get away from Russia, which is good. And then I also heard one theory that um, it's it's more about like um, science and technical education. And also like they think that if they have this alphabet, it'll like help people also learn English and like these other languages um, better. Yeah, I think it's mixed. mixed it's not yeah. just that we really don't like Cyrillic alphabet or something like that. 
it's just uh, to integrate into the world society mm-hmm. where majority uses Latin alphabet. Mm-hmm. Plus, um, I mean, it's just, um, and I guess going back to the past where we had Latin alphabet right. and many books are still in Latin from the past and it's not that difficult for us to switch and it's search for your own identity after post-independence period. So it's many things mixed in this uh, one political decision. Yeah. Yeah. I just have one uh, final question. I have a a really good friend uh, named Aina. She's from Omsky Oblast, which is right by the borders Kazakhstan and she's actually Kazakh. and I've, I've wanted, and so through her, I know I know a little bit about Kazakh culture and things like that. But I've always wanted to go to Kazakh Kazakhstan. Do you, where where would you guys recommend, you know, an American to go in Kazakhstan, and maybe what 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 to do? Is it a place that you think it would be interesting for us to travel to? Oh yeah, yeah, it's definitely. Amazing place. It's very beautiful. Lots of nature. Yeah. Um, different culture different cuisine yeah we know many americans who actually live in kazakhstan they love it so much like one of them is dennis king he's uh, from california and he's married kazakh woman and he studies kazakh language and explores he actually gives like walking tours in almaty the city Uh we're from uh, to foreigners um he knows almaty more than the local people and yeah almaty actually is a first best stop yeah, I hear the best things about Almaty because it's like this like hipster city and it's got the mountains right right by it and people go skiing. And so it seems to me like the funnest season to go would actually maybe be in the winter. But what do you guys think? I wouldn't recommend you to come. It's going to be a bit cold. Yeah, it's very cold. <laughs> like minus 20 Ooh, yeah, that's Celsius. Pretty that's pretty cold, yeah. But if you want to ski, like winter or uh, spring will uh-huh. do because in spring we still have snow. Right. And I think spring is pretty beautiful season because in summer it's really hot, like mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And um, y- in Almaty, you can uh, travel to other destinations like Charing Canyon. It's the same, kind of the same canyon as Grand Canyon in the mm-hmm. U.S., but smaller in size. Then um, you will see deserts, you will see lakes in the mountains, you will see rivers, steppe. You can see anything within like 12 hours driving. <laughs> basically thank you guys so much for coming on this has been a real treat for us thank you thank you for hosting us it was we wish you the best of luck in your future endeavors thank you thank you and we wish you good luck with the podcast hopefully (laughs) we'll be popular in Kazakhstan we're gonna need it too yeah (laughs) the views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas please visit slavxradio.com for more information thank you for listening The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Nirta Bashelovic. I'm a global policy student at the LBJ School. I study European policy, and I'm here with European Horizons to invite you all to attend our event on November 22nd that's going to be focused on human rights and multilateral settings. We have two amazing guests coming. One is Alexander Schutzman, who is a senior advisor at the office of the president of the UN General Assembly. 
And the other one is Ambassador Silvio Gonzalo. He is a deputy head of delegation of European Union to the UN. Both are great delegates, great EU experts, and we think it's going to be an amazing event. So please show up. It's going to be fun. And see you there on November 22nd. I want to try a mechanical bull. I couldn't find it anywhere. I've never tried a mechanical bull. Me too. That's why I want to do that. I, I was on 6th Street and then I googled mechanical bull near me, but it didn't find it. <laughs> on your Google Maps, you just look at it. It just found one that is for rent and it was like $300. Oh, no.